Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Joe Jordan and intern Tommy Martin. Today on the program, how one community shaped its environmental future. We'll meet Andy and Mary Shaw Coran, two local advocates who spearheaded citizens' initiatives in two California counties that banned fracking. Plus, more science notes and phenomenon right here on Planet Watch. If you'd like to reach us, you can email us with questions for our guests at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And for those of you listening live, happy Mother's Day. We have our newscast to kick it off, and we'll start with a story with Joe Jordan's choice, and then we'll go around the circle and see what we discovered about science news and notes from all over the planet. Yeah, and happy Mother Earth's Day out there, everybody. Um, following up from last week where we were talking about exotic worlds in the solar system, uh, something that just kind of came out in the last week or so, to the public's knowledge anyway, was that on Jupiter's moon Io, which is the innermost moon of that giant planet and the most volcanically active world in the solar system, uh, they've discovered what they think may well be waves of lava in a great big lava lake on the surface of Io. You know, Io actually has all kinds of geysers and it's spewing out, you know, snow volcanoes, basically. So there are these strange waves of lava or, or at least overturning of lava in kind of a orchestrated temporally sequence. And the way they actually discovered this was when the moon Io got eclipsed or occulted by another moon of Jupiter, one that we talked about last week, called Europa. They timed it so that as Europa covered the moon Io and then uncovered it, they were able to look uh, much more, in much more detail at the infrared signature coming from activity on the surface of Io. So there's one for you. <laughs> Thank you. According to ABC News, a Dutch project to clean plastic from the great garbage patch in the world's oceans is ahead of schedule. The Ocean Cleanup, a Dutch foundation, announced a new system designed today that will allow them to begin an ambitious cleanup plan in less than the next 12 months, two years ahead of schedule. The Ocean Cleanup said today its new system features an anchor that does not attach to the ocean seabed, and instead it floats along with ocean currents. The anchor is deep enough to keep the system moving slower than the plastic that floats on the ocean's surface. System can then catch plastic inside a barrier, and if that plan is successful, the company claims it will be able to clean up 50% of the so-called Great Garbage Patch in five years. Scientists and environmental advocates have identified several so-called patches of marine debris floating in the world's oceans, but scientists caution that the term doesn't accurately describe the scope of the problem because much of that plastic is in micro beads that cannot be seen nor captured. So it will capture the largest of these various pieces that are floating in the garbage patch. There's a little comment uh, from our local uh, higher education institution, Cabrillo College here. Uh, we have a project. This is a place where both Rachel and I teach from time to time. Uh, there's a project there called the Clean Oceans Project that uh, proposes to go trolling around in the oceans, uh, picking up plastic and turning it into fuel, which then fuels the vessel that continues this process. Uh, you know, students and teachers and others are analyzing this and uh, have no idea yet really how it pencils out economically and environmentally, but it looks interesting, So, and it's 
related to that story, so there you go. And, of course, the best way, once they clean it all up, to eliminate the garbage patches to stop throwing trash on the ground and yep. have it or into the ocean. <laughs> That'd be a good start. All right, Tommy has a story for us. Yeah. Uh, while it may seem counterintuitive, research is finding that less dust can contribute to more pollution. A new study published in the journal Nature suggests that less airborne dust is actually making air pollution over China worse. That's because dust plays an important role in determining the air tem temperatures and thereby promoting winds to blow away human-made pollution. Using models to simulate 150 years of wind and dust patterns, uh, the researchers found that dust deflects significant amounts of sunlight. Without it, the land heats up, changing the relationship between ocean and land temperatures, which decreases wind speed. The study found reduced dust levels cause a 13% uh, increase in human-made pollution in the region. Although the increase of man-made emissions is still the main factor of the haze over eastern China, understanding how wind, dust, and man-made pollutants work together can help to limit some of the worst impacts. So I don't have to clean my house? So, <laughs> so not yeah. to make light of it, but, you know, dust is a good thing. Usually and we are dust-busting. That so. natural dust, for sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> keep it around. And I was curious, and we don't know the answer, so I'm not asking you, but just curiously out loud, uh, did they stop creating so much dust because they paved everything in China, or what happened there? It was actually the models that they were just determining what parts were more influenced by the uh. dust. So. so just getting better at measuring things sometimes changes the results. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, more on that later. And Joe, you have one more before we go to our guests? Yeah, I have another one that involves tiny particles, only this time it's not dust, it's ice way up in the atmosphere, in the mesosphere, which is about 50 miles high, the highest clouds on Earth. We never see in our area here at, you know, mid-latitudes in North America and other folks in the same band, but up in the far northern latitudes as well as the far southern latitudes, you can see these things called noctilucent clouds. Noctilucent, it means night light. Now just for reference, a lot of people, you know, ask your friends out there, your smartest, most well-educated friends, how high are the clouds we see anyway? Most people probably don't have any idea, but the highest ones, the cirrus clouds, the kind of wispy mare's tails, those are about 25 to 35,000 feet up, so you know, five, six miles. These clouds, noctilucent clouds, are 50 miles up. And they form in the high summer months, like May to July. Uh, I saw them once uh, one night in Norway, and it was uh, one of those evenings, you know, midsummer night's dream where uh, because the sun doesn't get very low below the horizon during summer nights there, it's kind of twilight all night long, and you get this eerie bluish electric blue glow in these wavy clouds. And uh, in today's earthsky.org, if you just go to earthsky.org, there's a video teaser of beautiful, beautiful noctilucent cloud formations from last year. And uh, the reason I'm bringing this up today is, hey, it's uh, early to mid-May now, and this is when the noctilucent cloud chasing season begins. <laughs> so if you happen to be going far north uh, this summer, uh, look for noctilucent clouds any hour of the night. Wow, awesome, thank you. And one more final story, this is sort of from that part of the world, a perfect segue. Um, you've heard of hybrid cars, yes? Now scientists are designing hybrid power plants that would use a combination of fossil fuels and concentrated solar energy to generate power, reducing carbon dioxide output by 33%. 
The concept in which steam generated by a solar field was fed directly into the power plant's high-pressure turbine brought a reduction in emission, emissions and fuel consumption, which at best exceeded 33%. Although the study was conducted by Finnish engineers, they haven't put it into practice yet, but Denmark has. They're always ahead of the curve, it <laughs> seems, and they are already using CSP biohybrid plants to produce district heating. Just a little explanation of that. CSP is kind of renewable energy lingo for concentrated solar power, and the bio was biomass. So you know it could be fossil fuels or it could be biomass, which is better because that's basically a renewable fuel. It's you know it's not perfect as an energy source. There are land and water issues uh, when you harvest biofuels on a massive scale. Uh, solar is kind of the ultimate thing. You know it's ten thousand times the resource we need. But hey, this story actually is a perfect segue to our interview today because we're going to be talking about energy, something we all need, and there are bad ways to get it and good ways to get it. So anyway, thanks for that last story there, Rachel. Yeah, absolutely. This is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan and Tommy Martin here in the studio. And if you'd like to chime in and either ask a question or make a comment, we are taking them now via email at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. That's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. We're also live on YouTube today on our Facebook page, which is Planet Watch Radio. <laughs> if you can get those, you can find us right there on Facebook. So uh, this is an interesting story of local control. Um, you've heard of fracking. We'll be defining it in a minute, but it's the practice of fracturing the deep uh, rocks in the earth to either get gas or oil in places that may have been um, already in the past used to try to get oil out of in a more shallow way, but they go deeper and try to get more out of the ground. There have been some critics saying that uh, for a long time this could indeed cause a great deal of trouble for water, something California has never had a lot of, especially groundwater. In the last drought, our groundwater was severely impacted by overpumping, especially in the Central Valley from agriculture. Today in the studio, we have Mary and Andy Shaw Coron. They have both been very involved in both San Benito County and Monterey County, both of which passed measures to ban fracking, some of the first counties in California to do so. And they are a guest here on Planet Watch. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Let's start from the first effort you made to uh, do this. And what, where did this come from in your lives, you know, about your personal background a little bit? And how did you come to decide this was your issue that you were going to put in countless hours on? Um, well, first, I, I, I'd like to say um, uh, about 10 days ago, a person named Rose Brass passed um, who was the co-chair of Californians Against Fracking, and she played a role in this story. Um, I knew her from the past working on uh, prison reform issues. I used to teach in the prison system, and found out that she'd become chair of Californians Against Fracking, and I reached out to her early on to congratulate her, and we began to talk about what was going on in San Benito County. They had sent exploring trucks, thumper trucks, out into the Aromas area, um, testing the ground, looking for potential for uh, drilling. And uh, there had been an effort locally in Aromas to contain that uh, effort, to uh, update the regulations in San Benito County. And it became clear as we followed this process that those regulations, which the oil industry had helped negotiate, 
we're not really going to protect San Benito County. So I reached out to Rose early on to talk about the potential for doing an initiative to actually ban uh, fracking and related activities. And one of the first things we needed to know was whether there was a legal basis in under California law to do just that. And Rose, being that we knew each other from the past from political efforts, kind of vouched for our ability to, to get things done. And the Center for Biological Diversity helped in uh, funding some legal work to just analyze, you know, where we were under California law, because nobody wants to get involved in a huge effort like this and then discover after they're done that the courts are going to undermine what you've achieved. And Mary, what's your background and how did you get involved? Yeah, You're so obviously married, so was right. it his idea or was <laughs> it your idea? Well, I think what happened is in 2012, um, Andy and I both took early retirement. I had worked at Hewlett Packard for uh, 28 years and Andy had taught for over that number of years, probably around that number of years. So we were originally from UC Santa Cruz, and I have a computer science and environmental studies background, and me as a biology background. So we were kind of uh, thinking about things to do in retirement. And, you know, one of the things that, um, I mean, we were already very concerned about climate change. And um, it seemed like it wasn't, you know, probably the first project I would have launched, <laughs> but since it was a pressing issue in our community, we live in Aromas, um, which is between uh, San Juan Batista and Watsonville, for people who don't know where that is. Um, we decided that, you know, we should probably do something. And a lot of this was, you know, serendipity, talking to different people. We never intentionally decided to do an initiative, but as we researched it more, it became clear that that's the most powerful way. Um, what we have observed, in fact, we talked to Josh Fox, who did, uh, who created Gasland 1 and 2. Um, he really felt that regulations are not enough. And we also talked to a family friend who worked in the fracking industry back east, and he said, you have to stop it before it gets into your community, because once they make investments in your community, it's really hard. Um, and so in San Benito County, uh, we had several meetings. We decided, okay, let's just do grassroots meetings and met the public library in San Juan Batista. We had some amazing people join our very first meeting, Margaret and Larry Rebecca, Sam Ramos, Natasha Wist. Um, they were part of a reading circle of progressives, and coincidentally, several of them are UCSC alumni as well, So, um, and, and, and also retired teachers. Uh, one is a retired psychologist. So we um, started meeting on a regular basis in 2013, and um, it took us a while. You know, we got the information from the attorneys that this could work, and so we started working on the initiative. Did you want to say some more about that? You know, well, critical to all this was is engaging the community. Um, I like to think of fracking and a lot of our other problems, climate change, um, environmental destruction in general, even issues of mass incarceration as symptoms of a lack of democracy in our country. Because if you really look at where peop what people want, it's very different than most of the policies that we live under. And uh, so we needed to find a way to actually empower people to get the kind of future they wanted in our region. And um, so we held these meetings and began to talk about what would we want done in San Benito County. 
and uh, it was clear that people really did not want any of the extreme oil extraction methods. So the initiative that was passed, that we drafted in San Benito County, didn't just ban fracking, it also banned acidizing and cyclic steam injection, all of kind of the enhanced drilling methods as well as a number of other enhanced methods, all of which have higher risk of water contamination and they also have higher risk of earthquakes and people pretty much in San Benito County were okay with the idea that if oil could be extracted by conventional methods, essentially sinking a well and pumping that oil out without in any way changing the substrata, that they, you know, that they would be willing to allow that to continue. And there is a small oil industry in South San Benito County, and that is continuing under after the passage of Measure J. But there was a proposal in South County to do a thousand oil well project by the Pinnacles National Park, about six miles from it, and that was going to be a cyclic steam project in tar sands down there. And most people, when they heard about that, were appalled by that idea because, you know, what our number one industry in uh, San Benito County is agriculture, and second is tourism, and the Pinnacles are a pivotal part of that. Right. So. Um the state of California allowed this under its current rules that you, before you passed this county-by-county uh, county initiative. I'm sure that once you went public with your initiative, you got some pretty big um, oil companies interested in fighting you. Can right. you talk about when that opposition appeared and how, in what form it appeared? How, yeah. did, how did that come about? I, I think they didn't really take us seriously in the beginning. And so in 2013, you know, we... That was when we finally decided late in the fall to really launch this. So it took us a while. We had to find attorneys who could actually draft an initiative. And, you know, I don't think the oil industry even was on their radar then. And uh, um, now I just want to mention one quick thing about an initiative. And, you know, we, we did think a good deal about also democracy because we're actually very interested in democracy. It's not just about um, fracking oil. And so we were thinking this is a, it's important to use a creative way. Our mentor is Art, Professor Art Pearl, who is a former UC Santa Cruz professor. Now he lives in Eugene, Oregon, has been teaching there more recently until he retired, I think, 94 years old. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, he thinks that the root of all problems currently is in, in our society is, is really lack of democracy. The fact that people... Um, corporations get to do pretty much what they want. And, you know, I, I think Andy is best at telling this story about, you know, why the initiative process is so powerful because we are in a period of time in history that's reminiscent of a period earlier, around the early 1900s, when um, Southern Pacific Railroad really was the powerful corporation in the West and pretty much dictated who was going to be governor at any elected office. So you want to explain why the yeah, initiative was... there was a realization with the extreme uh, over-influence of Southern Pacific Railroad, especially in California, that what people wanted really was not happening at all. And right here in Santa Cruz in 1910 at the Republican Convention, the State Republican Convention, they launched the effort to do three major reforms under California law. The initiative process the referendum, and recall. And the initiative process is a way that citizens can directly write and organize and pass laws without, with, if need be, without the support of any elected officials. 
The referendum is a way for people to look at laws and organize to have them canceled, negated. It's not used very often. And uh, finally, the uh, recall, which uh, some of you may remember that Gray Davis was recalled in California, only the second governor in the history of the United States to be recalled. But all those were ways to essentially um, allow uh, people's desires to make changes and to craft their future to put them in the driver's seat. And so uh, in a lot of ways, the initiative process has been commandeered and misused by big corporate interests, but it still has the potential, especially at the local level, to get past um, timid uh, or compromised elected officials. So we decided to use the initiative process, which really is a way to bypass, uh, I would say, compromised politicians. I mean, we had this happen before. Unfortunate thing, as Andy mentioned, is the initiative process has been corrupted. Even corporations themselves have been using this, you know, with paid signature gathers. So we decided to return to the roots of initiatives. Instead of hiring people, which we didn't have money to do anyway, we decided to have volunteers. So we uh, activate a lot of our friends and they, you know everyone we knew and so did the rest of the group we had a 25 core group and so we collected way more signatures than we needed but we didn't realize till later that that is part of the campaign and you know people did mention why don't you just have people pay but really that is really an important process this is a very important de direct democracy process so I think that helped us after we qualified, the oil industry did start paying attention, I think, but they still never really did too much. I think they used techniques like they got the the powerful people in San Benito County to try to oppose us. For example, the newspaper, the freelance, basically said that we were liars and that there was no fracking and that's not a problem. And also the Chamber of Commerce, the Farm Bureau, the Cattlemen's Association, you know, this is a very agricultural area. So they got the heavy hitters to just basically discredit us, I think. Um, but they did start taking more, paying more attention you know, after we qualified, I do believe. And they spent $2.1 million on, on the campaign. So I'll stop there. And how much did you spend? We spent 140000 So we were outspent probably 18 to 1, we estimate. This is a real David and Goliath story. Exactly. We're going to go to a break in just a moment and come back and find out how this campaign got duplicated in yet another county, in a much bigger county in California, and what the fossil fuel agencies did to fight back. We'll also tell you what Americans think about restricting coal-fired power plants and their CO2 emissions compared to what the government thinks right now and how different that point of view is when we come back right after this break. This is Planet Watch. Stay tuned.
to Planet Watch right here, and thank you for tuning in. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Joe Jordan, our co-host. And today we're talking about banning fracking community by community. We're talking with two activists that garnered a big grassroots movement um, in one tiny county and how it spread. Uh, before we get back to our interview with the Shah Korans, we're going to talk about Americans' attitudes about such things. They talked about how... Um, they were fighting a grassroots battle and that most often the community members have one thing they want and then sometimes their leaders are quite compromised by campaign contributions. Um, this map, which is published in the New York Times and on our Facebook page, if you'd like to look at it, there's actually six maps. They're district-by-district district maps of the entire U.S. And this one says Americans want to restrict carbon emissions from coal power plants. And this is by a 69%. Um, they're in the majority, the people who want this. And the White House and Congress at this point, um, the majority of them, don't um, want to do the opposite. So there are these amazing maps where the people feel quite differently. Um, a really interesting one, however, <laughs> that says a lot about how our brains work is one that says most people think that climate change will harm Americans. But they don't think it will happen to them. So when you look at the counties that do, they're all on the Gulf Coast or in California, very or very far into Maine and along the Massachusetts coast and all the way up into Oregon and Washington. But um, there's a lot of this country that thinks it's a problem, but it won't affect me. And that's just how our brains work as human beings. We look for immediate threats, not these long-term things until they hit us. And the states that said it was going to be dangerous to them were the ones who have been recently hit by droughts and hurricanes and floods. And of course... Which makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. So we're back with the Chakrans, and they are two people who took their time in retirement to fight back against some of the most powerful and most wealthy and influential corporations on the planet. And they won. <laughs> so t we were getting toward the part of the story where you won in San Benito County, um, not before the fossil fuel companies did notice you and decided to put some heavy firepower and influencers out there to fight you. How'd you win? Well, I think that, you know, as we mentioned before, a grassroots campaign can make a big difference because when you're up against, um, you know, the airways were deluged with TV ads, radio ads, and the internet was filled with ads. In fact, some of our members tried to put, a, I think, I don't know too much about it, but tried to, to bid for some ads, and it was really expensive because the oil industry had, you know, pretty much taken up, you know, the space, I guess, in the internet for a lot of these ads. So it was very expensive. Um, so we basically, you know, we had some mailers. Um, we, we did a lot of, you know, contact with individuals, canvassing, going to Andy, I think, worked at the post office. You know, it's a small community. It's only 58,000 or so. Um, so you can actually reach a lot of people hanging out at the post office. We it's went, one of the smaller we went, counties in California, store, right? Yeah, and grocery mm -hmm. stores. Um, did you want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, we went to lots and lots of community groups, presentations. Uh, we had debates in the one of the two high schools, actually presentations at both high schools leading up. Mm -hmm to this. Um, Sounds like a healthy democratic process where the, the <laughs> ideas were vetted pretty yeah. fully. There weren't just manipulative ads, but there was actually But we also didn't concede learn. the territory. When Mary talked about the big interests that sided with oil, um, yes, the Cattlemen's Association and Farm Bureau came out against us. We managed to 
gather up former presidents of both of those organizations to speak on our side. Um, we had farmers and ranchers and business people writing to the Chamber of Commerce saying you never asked us what we thought about this. We think that banning fracking is the right thing to do. And ultimately, there was enough organizing and pushback that the Chamber of Commerce went neutral, hmm. removed their endorsement for the other and, side. And the, one of the really key farmers in San Diego County resigned from the, uh, from the Farm Bureau publicly, wrote a letter and said, I'm sending my $1,000 membership to Yes on J campaign. <laughs> and so, you know, I don't know if most people know, but San Diego County has the highest percentage of organic farms of any county in the state. So people don't always know that. And we also have some pioneers in organic grass-fed beef. Joe Morris took it upon himself. I think that's actually another way we won is because people, it really, people started feeling like they could just run their own campaign. So Joe started his own website called Farm and Ranch Families, sorry, Facebook against fracking. And he started creating videos and, you know, posting things and writing articles and that's so, possible now that so many people have these tools they can do their own um just as the, the super PACs can do their own ads without asking you you can get individuals yeah. on the positive side for your campaign doing these ads that can be quite viral and powerful and i always found it interesting that farmers who rely on water were against this initially that doesn't make sense to me mm -hmm. because they don't unless they're going to sell out to the oil companies and make a lot more money than they're right. making in cattle, which I guess... Well, I think there's a general community of interest among businesses that's kind of antagonistic to any governmental agency or telling them about how they use their property or their land. There's an anti-regulatory reflex, and I think they played on that reflex initially mm -hmm. to, uh, to get a rejection but I think as people began to think about it more, they began to say, well, m maybe in this case, I do agree that some of this is a risk to because us. Because one of the things that people don't realize is that in a, most of, a lot of the West, especially in California and in South County, San Benito County, the land, the mineral rights are split from the surface rights, something called split estates. And where the oil industry wanted to do this massive oil field, the property owner, Charlie Hinko is a rancher and he was opposed to it because he only owned the surface rights. The oil companies could come and drill a thousand wells, did not have to compensate him. He could go to court and sue them, you know, for, you know, compensation, but the rights, uh, mineral rights sort of trump surface rights. And so a lot of people in the South County area did not own their mineral rights and they were very upset and did not want this to happen where someone mm -hmm. could just come on their property and start drilling. Now, a lot of people in Eastern Kentucky, um, have learned this about coal mining and Joe has a question. Well, <clears throat> first, uh, we meant to mention right after the break, uh, you can email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Uh, you know, lots of interesting questions I'm sure we all have for, and by the way, we probably ought to go a little bit over time. We've got two great folks in here. I don't have that much oddball stuff for the end of the show, but, uh, anyway, uh, I wanted to sort of segue to the next county, the really big one, the very important prize for the oil industry, Monterey County, uh, by bringing up a story when Andy first got me interested in this. Uh, what really caught my attention was the story from New York, where they banned fracking city by city, county by county, and the pro-fracking governor finally saw the writing on the wall and just banned it statewide, or at least gave in to a ban, but maybe you guys can 
say a little more about how all that worked and that's a model for what we're up against or up for now well early on we read an article about a woman named helen slotchy who had received the goldman prize she was a retired attorney and not an environmental attorney uh, and she and her husband were concerned about fracking spreading from Pennsylvania to upstate New York. And as she reached out to environmental organizations and said, we should stop this, the, the response was, there's no way legally you can stop this. All you can do is have stronger regulations. And it didn't seem to ring true to her. You mean we can stop a pig farm? in our town, we can stop them from opening certain kinds of chemical uh, factories near the school, but we can't stop them from fracking, which is just another industrial activity. And uh, they came up with this idea of looking at the authority of lo local authority over land use and industrial activities and zoning. And up in Dryden, New York, they passed the first ban on fracking and then proceeded to share what they learned about that with other cities and talking to other folks and organizing and ultimately hundreds of communities uh, used the approach of land use and zoning to ban fracking. The oil industry challenged the first cities and went up to the highest courts in New York State and the high court said, yes, local authorities have this right. And at that point, the door was wide open and, and I think that's when the governor recognized the writing on the wall that uh, either he was going to be supportive of this effort or be left behind. So uh, the Monterey Formation is this shale formation, and for a while they thought it was the next, you know, Bakken oil fields. They mm -hmm. thought it was going to yield billions of gallons of oil and that there would be a gold rush, essentially, in this very pretty agricultural county of Monterey. has some big cities, but a lot of it's ranch land. Tell me how that news, and, and, and it did shift a bit about how productive that, Right. formation was going to be. How did that coincide with your campaign for Measure Z? And let's talk about Measure Z while we have the time. You want to right. talk about the petition first, okay. Um Yeah, so Measure Z, uh, we were actually asked, we live on the border, literally, of the two counties, and so we were asked to advise on Measure, well, actually, back then, it was just St. Monterey's effort to put a moratorium on fracking. There was a grassroots group that had been working when we worked on Measure um, Jay in 2014, they approached their supervisor, they collected petition signatures, just unofficially, they were not formal ones, and they got the supervisors to agree to a moratorium. I mean, I think they went through the process, it went to the planning commission, and then came, they recommended it to the supervisor. So the supervisor sent the planning department to go off and draft something. And by the next year, 2015, they were supposed to vote on the spring, and we were friends with a lot, a, a lot of these activists in Monterey. So we went to their meetings, and we were shocked to see the supervisor vote it down. During that time, the oil industry had gotten to them. So, you know, this dejected group of people, I remember that day we went to a Mexican restaurant, and that was where they said, okay, I guess we'll have to do an initiative like you guys did. They didn't really want to do it, but they decided to do it. And so we ended up consulting and got more and more involved in it. And so... To make a long story short, you know, we, we were very active. And um, so, and what was the question you had? Well, how did it coincide with the various discoveries of what, how much, and estimates of how much oh, oil right. was under the Monterey Formation, which well, is really underlying a lot of Monterey? Yeah. Well, County. Monterey Formation is much bigger than you think. It turns out it's actually from south, south Sacramento all the way to practically Southern California, but it is called the Monterey Formation. A lot of it is in Monterey. Now, the thing about the shale formation is that you need to use acids because our 
um, because of the earthquakes in our count in our state the shales are all distorted and so you actually have to dissolve it and so a lot of times they'll use techniques like acid fracking which they tried actually they've been testing this in south monterey county in bradley and so they've been doing both fracking and acidizing so that's one of the reasons the group decided to do it because they wanted to stop you know in the future as the price of oil goes back up there'll be more demand for these harder to get uh, oil resources and so they wanted to stop that but they also wanted to tackle steam injection and there's 15 hundred of those wells. So I'll stop there. And just to say that the initiative in Monterey County is a little different than San Benito's. Yes, it said no fracking, no acidizing, but it also limited, you know, you've got the fourth biggest oil producing county in California, down by the San Ardo area of 1,500 more or less wells. And uh, the idea was that was far more than Monterey County should have had. So the initiative stops it, freezes that footprint, says that's as big as the oil industry is going to get, 1,000. Those wells are the limit, and there'll be no new oil wells drilled in Monterey County. The other issue in Monterey County is the disposal of contaminated water from the oil industry down there. There's a lot of water in that oil field, and in the process of steaming and pumping it out, they produce tremendous amounts of contaminated um, water, millions of gallons every day, and what they've been doing with the majority of that is pumping it back into the deep aquifers in violation of the Federal Safe Drinking Water Act, and people were very concerned about that because water in Monterey County is essentially follows the Salinas River underground, flows from south to north all the way out to Monterey Bay, so all the cities, all the farms of the Salinas Valley, the richest one of the richest agricultural valleys in the United States are de dependent on that groundwater, which potentially could be contaminated. And they were pumping a lot of it during the drought, so it's clearly uh, a needed and precious and da endangered resource. Tell me the timeline of when um, it started to get close to passage. I heard a lot of ads. <laughs> this yeah. was a bonanza for local media, probably right. this station. I heard it on, you know, <laughs> K-Pig, which is this music station I listen to, <laughs> yes. and I thought, you know, if this is the hippie Grateful Dead playing, you know, country <laughs> rebel station playing Measure Z, anti-Measure Z ads, they're really worried that it might pass. Right. So. They, were, they were much more worried, so they started even earlier. So before we even had drafted the initiative this time in um, Monterey County in 2016, early 2016, they had already started doing these ads. And so people were like, what is going on here in Monterey County? They had never and even heard of it until the ads, Yeah, right? so the ads in some ways alerted people. <laughs> it gave and, you free uh, advertising. Yes. It did to some extent. Because a lot of times the ads really, you know, create the awareness. So we started petition gathering, and it was helpful that they were doing the ads because a lot of times it takes a while to explain this to people, but then, you know, they understood what was happening. Thanks, ExxonMobil. You just helped us out. That's right. They made, they made the people <laughs> aware that there was an issue of oil, and it left it open for us to educate people about what should be done about it. But they did spend, they spent $5.4 in Monterey County. It might be even higher because uh, we haven't checked the final reports from the FPPC. In San Benito County, they spent $2.1 So it was still quite a lot in San Benito, but I think, you know, they were very worried. Um, I, th I think, though, in Monterey, it was seven and a half times bigger than San Benito, so even our own people especially the the Monterey natives uh, were like 
they didn't think we were going to win some of them um so we actually brought a lot of you know joe helped there were a lot of our old stalwart supporters from santa cruz actually and, and san benito san benito county and the bay area who had all worked on the measure j campaign they helped a lot in measure z and i think that reinforcement really helped the community in, in monterey because they had lost measure m and measure o those were two environmental initiatives in monterey county you know, the so recent. you got the supervisors against your measure how far did it pass what was the margin well, oh. well, we won with 56% in Monterey County, again, being outspent about 18 to 1. And uh, I don't think anybody um, saw that coming. Uh, we did get supervisors um, who did endorse us. Yeah, we actually had um, Jane Parker endorse us, so we were very lucky. And Ana Caballero, who was running for assembly, and Bill Monning, too, endorsed and did a radio ad and TV ad for us. So that was very helpful. And Dolores Huerta did an ad for us, which was really moving to a lot of folks yeah, who knew about her history with the farm workers movement. It started going viral at the end, and so we even had um, a short video from Mark Ruffalo, and um, um, Leonardo DiCaprio did a, a tweet for us, so it started, you know, getting out there. And there were also some Latino musicians who are well-known. Their names escape me, unfortunately. And so they, um, you know, really helped us. I want to mention that we actually ran a campaign that was very strong in the Latino community. So I think that was one of the, the key reasons we won. Yeah, I was just going to inject a little bit of art into this back. You were talking about all the slick, slimy ads against the measure by the oil industry it was just this veritable flood and the the line from shakespeare comes to mind uh, something like methinks thou dost protest too much yeah but anyway we got a nice uh, comment here from ray a couple questions and a comment he was talking about what about redirecting fossil fuel subsidies to renewables um, that could be kind of a segue into the other big thing that Andy and Mary and I and others are now involved in, which is bringing clean, renewable energy to the whole tri-county area. But, you know, keep talking right. if you want on the other stuff. Yeah, I want to wrap one more point around the Measure Z before we move on to your sure. other project, and that is you're being sued. What's going on with that? Well, I would say it's not us directly. It's the county of Monterey and the people of Monterey being sued. So the oil industry, we're up to six lawsuits now, the first two came right after the election. It was Chevron and Air Energy. That's Air Energy is owned by ExxonMobil and Shell. So the big, we can now call them big oil, has sued the county. And you know, it's really intimidation. Um, they did the same thing. They intimidated the supervisors in San Benito County, the oil companies. However, they only had one lawsuit and they kind of used one smaller company to do it. But the lawsuit in San Benito was dropped after a short time. Um, but they did make the supervisors feel that they were going to go bankrupt or just lose millions of dollars. Isn't and there also the threat by the Koch brothers in particular, since they're part of that triumvirate of companies, they own a lot of interest in them. They pay money to run ads against the supervisors, and the threat is you run again and I'm going to have you out of office, right? So Yeah, we're, we're hearing word um, that certain supervisors who supported us, for instance, Robert Rivas in uh, San oh, Benito right. County, has been told, you know, he's either going to run for re-election or run for assembly, perhaps, that uh, the oil industry is not happy with the fact that he came out publicly in favor of it, our efforts. It is, you know, risky, I think, for people, you know, because, but I do think that 
if the grassroots supports you, I think that can really make a difference. So after all, we're supposed to be voting them in and out, not Chevron, right? They don't yeah. get they yeah. don't get a vote. The oil industry has spent a lot in the whole state. In fact, there is a movement right now. There is a rally next weekend, I should mention, on the 20th. It's called um, Oil Money Out, and it's really out of politics to, to ask all our elected officials to stop taking money from dirty oil, you know, to, to just say no. And we think that could help a lot. Is that uh, statewide? or This is statewide. This is a whole campaign. If you look at the website, and they're starting it by launching this march. It's during the, Cal the California Democratic Convention next week, weekend on the 20th, um, I think by the <clears throat> governor's mansion, <laughs> they're going mm. to do this rally. And, and that so, does bring uh, me to, where's Jerry Brown and all this? And then we'll move yeah. to the initiative that Joe was talking well, about. Let's answer that first. Where is he? He was before you know, your initiative was kind of wishy, wishy, saying you could regulate and not ban. A lot of people like to say Jerry is brown, not green, <laughs> in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. And it's clear that uh, he has received money uh, over the years from the oil industry, and he has been no friend of efforts to ban fracking uh he's um we had his policy he's, advisor he's, on the show oh really yeah and he dodged he, we asked him the question oh he didn't answer a, it very well he answered I, it I, that jerry brown believes in regulating that's yeah. what he said unfortunately it doesn't work well and I, I think even with regulation i don't think he really believes in it because we were following what happened in kern county there is um, a chevron worker who died in a steam injection um sinkhole and you know he was just basically literally swallowed alive and boiled by hot mud, and and um, Jerry Brown's um, head of Dogger at the time. Um, Dogger, shot every, you should define the division of oil, oil, gas, and geothermal. It's a great resources. name. Okay, yeah. <laughs> they call it Dogger. They don't so dog they them well had, enough. Yeah, it's a great name. They shut down this in and and just said you know you have to stop and figure out what's going on. Someone died, and Jerry Brown um, got all this pressure from the oil industry back then to to open up the oil fields and start you know because they were they didn't want to lose money and so he did he got he fired that that head and and so really i don't think he really is even following his the regulations that are on the book so i think jerry brown is compromised and it's unfortunate a lot of people don't know that i was at a solar conference where he got a standing ovation in 2014 and people just you know think he's just such a green governor and he's really not he's very smart I think he presents a good face and does some things, but it's very shallow. It's not really tackling the climate crisis that we are confronting. So it sounds like from what you're saying that your efforts may not be aimed yet at a statewide, uh, maybe at a statewide initiative, but not at necessarily convincing Jerry Brown to switch his position. Well, um, he is on his way out, and uh, hopefully uh, we're already trying to educate candidates such as Gavin Newsom. Such as Gavin Newsom. <laughs> Do we um, know where he stands on this? Well, he's told us he told that he we was against him, fracking. Yeah. We, we met him and... Uh, he came out for single-payer health care. So that'll yeah. be interesting to see where he we'll stands see. on this one. Yeah. Well, we only have a few more minutes left, so I'd like to wrap it up by quickly having you describe in a short minute or two the initiative Joe was talking about. Oh, well, so that's a, Oh, right. So after Measure Z1, you know, we ended up... Assembling a, a strong legal team to help intervene, and and as we were doing that, people were saying, you know, this um, great opportunity is happening. It's community choice aggregation. Um, it's the effort started by Bruce McPherson in 
in Santa Cruz County to create a joint power authority comparable to the ones in Sonoma County and Marin County. Um, basically, you can buy energy through this joint power authority instead of PG&E. That would be kind of the, the default. You can still opt and, to stay with PG&E, and PG&E is required by law to support all this. This all has been worked out quite a few years ago in so legislation. So hence the word choice. You could choose to ditch PG&E and go for a profile of a portfolio that was more solar. Exactly. More so wind. this would double the amount of solar immediately that, we, that PG&E currently... PG&E does buy some solar. Um, so the Joint Power Authority was encountering some difficulty. Unfortunately, every single community or jurisdiction has to vote on it. So every single city, every single county has to, the counties vote for on behalf of the unincorporated areas. So they were encountering problems in Watsonville, in Hollister, in almost all the cities in Monterey. So our group basically activated and helped win in basically those communities. So it'll spread from there county by county, community by community. This is what we're talking about is individual communities. It's not going to be the big leaders, which are getting big money. It's going to be the smaller leaders. And we still have to empower even our county supervisors not to take oil money. A lot of work they have made us do with very little money, but we're doing it. Great example of community willpower. And I, I applaud you for sticking it out. Thank you for being our guest today on Planet Watch. Thank yes. you for having us. Yeah, been, really looking, you. been really looking forward to having them in here. We have known each other for two-thirds of our lives, <laughs> 40 years when I was a grad student at UCSC and then we were undergrads. And hey, this is I Mary Shaw Coron and Andy, Andy. Shaw Coron. Yeah. They are guests. They are with, what's the name of your organization in case people want to read more about um, you? San Benito Rising and Protect Monterey County. All right. Thank you for being here. Can I do a half-minute riddle, just a teaser for next time? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was going to get into the whole thing about it, but hey, I'll just give you something to think about. You've probably heard it said that stars twinkle while planets don't. Uh, now, when I was a first grader way back in ancient history, back in Virginia, my first grade teacher said, well, stars twinkle because it's stardust kind of filtering past the line of sight between us and the stars. That's sort of a compelling, interesting explanation. It's wrong. Um, stars twinkle because they are outside the turbulent atmosphere of the sun. I mean, sorry, of the earth, outside the turbulent atmosphere of the earth. But the question is, wait a minute, planets are outside our atmosphere also. So why don't they twinkle if stars twinkle because of the, you know, atmospheric fluctuations and turbulence? So think about that, and for next time, we'll talk more about that. And I do believe we have some exciting guests for next week. We can forward promo. Tommy, you want to give us a little hint? Yeah, we're gonna, I, I have trouble pronouncing her last name, but we're going to have Connie on, Connie, and she is a communication, she does communication about climate change, and... It's going to be a really interesting conversation. How to talk about what only 36% of the country seems willing to talk about. How to get who, who that number she up. Who, she is she with, with? Um, I believe she's with um, Yale or Harvard in part of the communications uh, department that works on how to talk about difficult things. So we'll be finding out why some people don't even want to talk about something so big and what we can do to open up the conversation in a non-threatening way so we can begin to come to some consensus about our future. So that's next week on Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman along with Joe Jordan. Keep an eye on the sky. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Andy and Mary.